This is a podcast from SCC English, the English department of St. Columbus College, Dublin in Ireland. Visit our blog www.sccenglish.ie for more information. Welcome to the SCC English podcast number 14, the last in this academic year. I am talking to my former colleague John Fanican on the 18th of June 2009. This is Julian Gurdon from the English department and this week we are going to be discussing one of the truly great novels of English or perhaps American literature, The Portrait of Lady by Henry James, which John originally taught me and then which we double taught as it were uh, to a group of pupils about 10 years ago during the summer. So I'm really talking about this for our last podcast for the summer because this is perfect summer reading. A great novel, a great meaty novel which you can sink into over July and August. So first of all, John, tell us a little bit about Henry James, exactly who was he, when he was alive and uh, a bit about his background. Henry James was uh, from Cavanstock originally was born uh, in the United States into um, uh, an upper-class um, family in New England. The James's father, um, a very famous uh, psychologist, philosopher, and um, he had a very privileged upbringing, travelled in Europe uh, as a child, and never had to worry about really about making money. He moved to England and settled in England um, in uh, the late 19th century and became a naturalised British citizen and uh, died in 1916. So uh, a man with his background uh, was very much concerned with a theme common to a number of novelists, what James called the international night. In other words, the life of Americans uh, living in Europe or of Europeans that came to America. And he was a man who was uh, lived a, a very, very sociable existence, but he never married, and was afraid of human intimacy, particularly sexual or physical intimacy, himself. And there is something of him, I think, in the character of the central character of the portrait of a lady, Lady Isabel Archer. Is that title, The Portrait of a Lady, it's a very anodyne and unmemorable title, really, uh, especially given that Henry James had some great titles, uh, What Maisie Knew, The Turn of the Screw, The Wings of the Dove, The Golden Bowl, and so on. Uh, why did he give this particular book that very ordinary title, in a sense? Yes, it is an ordinary title. If you think of something like Washington Square, The Bostonians, um, The Golden Bowl, they evoke particular places, a particular symbolic object. The portrait of a lady, as you say, is very anodyne. But one of the great and perhaps unusual things about this novel is that James himself said in his preface to the 1908 edition, which was a revision of the earlier uh, 1882 book, uh, he said that um, the first thing the first germ of this book was the idea, as he put it, of a young woman affronting her destiny. Isabel Archer's character is the novel. He had to place her in a certain set of what he called relations, in other words, situations, relationships. 
And in some ways it was like looking at a picture from different angles in different lights and seeing different people seeing different things about that picture. So what looks something quite insignificant, in other words, not a particular place, even a particular time, just the picture of a woman, that is enough for him to create this extraordinary and complex novel. Yes, and we'll start with the idea of a picture in a second because the opening of the book is very, very visual, very cinematic, really. I, I should say that in our conversation here, um, since I'm a huge fan and John is a huge fan of this book, there's not going to be much disagreement between us, but every now and then I'll throw in a kind of devil's advocate question to try and put a gr bit of grit in the conversation, but otherwise it's basically a, a love fest about this book. And it opens in one of the great openings of all literature. So I'm going to ask you, John, to read about the first page or so, chapter one, uh, this opening scene near the Thames in England. Under certain circumstances, there are few hours in life more agreeable than the hour dedicated to the ceremony known as afternoon tea. There are circumstances in which, whether you partake of the tea or not, some people of course never do, the situation is in itself delightful. Those that I have in mind in beginning to unfold this simple history offered an admirable setting to an innocent pastime. The implements of the little feast had been disposed upon the lawn of an old English country house in what I should call the perfect middle of a splendid summer afternoon. Part of the afternoon had waned, but much of it was left, and what was left was of the finest and rarest quality. Real dusk would not arrive for many hours, but the food of summer light had begun to ebb, the air had grown mellow, the shadows were long upon the smooth, dense turf. They lengthened slowly, however, and the scene expressed that sense of leisure still to come, which is perhaps the chief source of one's enjoyment of such a scene at such an hour. From five o'clock to eight is, on certain occasions, a little eternity. But on such an occasion as this, the interval could only be an eternity of pleasure. The persons concerned in it were taking their pleasure quietly, and they were not of the sex which is supposed to furnish the regular votaries of the ceremony I have imagined. The shadows on the perfect lawn were straight and angular. They were the shadows of an old man sitting in a deep wicker chair near the low table on which the tea had been served, and of two younger men strolling to and fro in desultory talk in front of him. So that's the beginning, and it's a, quite a deceptive opening. He talks about this simple history. This has got a 600-page simple history about to come. And it looks extraordinarily English, but there's a bit of a twist here, which is that, in fact, two of the three men are not English at all. And we'll introduce listeners now to these three men before we get on to the central character of the book. The old man sitting in the deep wicker chair is called Mr. Touchett. So, John, could you give us the background who, the, who exactly this man is? He's um, an old man, a, a, a very successful banker, an American banker, who has lived and had his, made his money and bought his beautiful country house in England. And he is obviously not very well, and in the first third of the novel, actually, he dies. The second young man is his son, Ralph, Ralph Touchett, who is um, a young man 
who has tuberculosis. He, he's never going to work. He's probably not going to live many years. But he is an extraordinarily sympathetic character. The third is an Englishman, Lord Warburton, a very handsome man in his 30s who has, as one of the characters puts it, a seat in Parliament as you would have at your dinner table, member of the House of Lords, great houses in England and Scotland, a very intelligent man, and he and Ralph are good friends. This is the background into which steps our young woman, a fresh young woman from the United States, who has been brought over there by her aunt, Mrs. Touchett, mother of Ralph. And I'll now read the very beginning of, of chapter two, which is the arrival of Isabel Archer, the lady of the title. And this is after a conversation between those three men. So this is the beginning of chapter two, the first paragraph of that chapter. While this exchange of pleasantries took place between the two, Ralph Touchett wandered away a little with his usual slouching gait, his hands in his pockets and his little rowdyish terrier at his heels. His face was turned toward the house, but his eyes were bent musingly on the lawn, so that he had been an object of observation to a person who had just made her appearance in the ample doorway for some moments before he perceived her. His attention was called to her by the conduct of his dog, who had suddenly darted forward with a little volley of shrill barks, in which the note of welcome, however, was more sensible than that of defiance. The person in question was a young lady, who seemed immediately to interpret the greeting of the small beast. He advanced with great rapidity and stood at her feet, looking up and barking hard, whereupon, without hesitation, she stooped and caught him in her hands, holding him face to face while he continued his quick chatter. His master now had had time to follow and to see that Bunchy's new friend was a tall girl in a black dress, who at first sight looked pretty. She was bareheaded, as if she were staying in the house, a fact which conveyed perplexity to the son of its master, conscious of that immunity from visitors which had for some time been rendered necessary by the latter's ill health. Meantime, the two other gentlemen had also taken note of the newcomer. "'Dear me, who's that strange woman?' Mr. Touchett had asked. "'Perhaps it's Mrs. Touchett's niece, the independent young lady,' Lord Warburton suggested." I think she must be, from the way she handles the dog. So that's our first sight of Isabel Archer, who will dominate the novel in terms of the story and uh, what it is about. As John says, the whole book is her, really. So um, at that moment, then, everyone's lives change, really. Well, certainly the two younger men, um, Warburton and Touchett. And we know, we sense, indeed, that their lives will become intimately intertwined with hers, alongside another man who we've yet to meet, another American, really. And then in the second part of the book, another character who we'll also introduce to you, who lives in Italy. So, John, would you like to take it on from there, that what, how the novel starts developing? Yes. Well, basically, from that first moment, the two men, Lord Warburton and Ralph Touchett, fall in love with Isabel. Ralph, because he's her cousin and because, as he says men with advanced pulmonary illnesses do not propose to young women 
uh, are interested in her and Lord Warburton indeed uh, very quickly decides he wants to marry her. He saw her as a, a, an independent woman, which she is, and that independence is a very important part of her character. Unlike a lot of American dollar princesses, as they were called, people like the Vanderbilts who came to America and married English dukes and brought loads of money, Isabel has just her independent spirit. She has no money. She is under the um, care, economic or financial care, of her aunt who wants to show her Europe. She quickly discovers that European manners and conventions are rather different from Americans. One evening when she is sitting up with her aunt and Ralph and Lord Warburton, her aunt says she's tired and wants to go to bed and Isabel says, well, I'll stay up for a while. And the aunt sighs and says, oh, well, so will I. Because, of course, in Europe, a young woman, unmarried, does not sit up unchaperoned with two uh, gentlemen, neither of whom she's married to. So anyway, Isabel uh, discovers uh, that, that Europe and America are very different. Um, in the background to all of this, Mr. Touchett is dying, and he, when he does die, he has an extraordinary provision in his will that um, he leaves his niece, Isabel, whom he has only recently met, a sum of £70,000. Now, you've got to understand, in today's money, that is Onassis-type wealth, Bill Gates-type wealth. She is now a real dollar princess. And tell us why exactly he leaves her that amount of money, having not known her for long. Because his son, Ralph, who is fascinated by Isabel, sees a remarkable young woman and wants to give her the opportunity to spread her wings, to be financially independent, not dependent upon his mother, her aunt, to allow her uh, the opportunities that a woman of her intelligence and imagination and independence should be given. And it is terribly ironic that it is that very money that, in the end, imprisons her. Exactly, and we'll come on to that in due course, but she's now not just young, not just beautiful, and not just bright, but she's rich as well. Yeah, exactly. Now, into the novel, after a while, in England, comes another of the main characters of, of the book, a man who arrives from America. Uh, he comes into it uh, basically following her, and his name is? Casper Goodwood. Now, surely that name says a great deal. Everything about him is hard, muscular, energetic, physical, and very direct. And he says to Isabel, I didn't want to stay in America because you weren't there. And I, uh, he, of course, wants to marry her. And his very presence in the hotel in London where he visits Isabel disturbs her, makes her feel agitated, makes her feel perhaps that she loses some of that independence that she already feels and she says that basically that she wants to be independent and he says she says to him if you hear a rumor that i'm going to get married don't believe it that is certainly not what she has in mind she has already turned down lord warburton one of the most eligible men in england there does not seem any sign 
that she is going to give herself willingly or freely or quickly to anybody else. So she just puts Casper Goodwood off with that and when he leaves, perhaps inexplicably, she bursts into tears. Yes, and as you said at the beginning, Henry James himself really led quite a kind of non or asexual life, but this man is clearly sexually attractive and uh, th this is what disturbs her to a great extent, isn't it? And later on, of course, there's going to be an actual moment, a physical connection, which yes. you might come to. Yeah, um, it, it's, it's said that uh, um, uh, James, who may well have been homosexual, that, that he resisted an advance made by another male friend of his saying, no, it's not that I just won't want to. I can't. I can't. It was, it was as, it, it, it's as if this is something um, beyond the pale, for, beyond the pale for James. And it's something that Isabel, physical passion, is something that she just cannot cope with. Now, can we just mention one other character, a very memorable character, not central to the plot, but very memorable, as I say, who is uh, Henrietta Stackpole, who is another American, and she becomes a good friend of Isabel's, and has quite a big part in her life, really. Could you tell us about her? Yes, she is very different from Isabel. She's, first of all, she's working for a living. She's a journalist. She's writing for Americans, American magazines about the lives of the uh, English and European upper classes. Um, she's very. Um, she she would be, I suppose, nowadays called a feminist. Um, she very much. Uh, she's very direct. She's uh, not uh, physically very attractive, but she is yes a a great friend to Isabel, and um, later indeed a great friend to Ralph. A very interesting character. James more or less apologizes in the preface to his novel that he, he didn't give her more scope but then as he said there really is too much to say yes exactly she does keep popping up now and then yes. during the novel now 255 pages in in chapter 22 we move to Italy for the rest of the novel and, and one of the great things I love about this book is its evocation of Florence in particular it's very very vivid lovely writing and this is after Mr Touchett dies as you say, she gets her inheritance, so she's a well-off woman. And now she arrives in Italy. So why precisely is she now moving into Florence? She's moving into Florence because Mrs. Touchett, has, her aunt, uh, has a house there. And she is also going to meet the man that she will eventually marry. And she has this meeting through a friend of Mrs. Touchett's called Madame Merle, as in the French for Blackbird, another American living in Europe, widow, a very attractive, very accomplished woman who spends her time, it seems, visiting um, upper-class rich friends. And she says to Isabel, when they first meet in England, you must meet... Um, an American friend of mine in Florence and it is in Florence that beautiful city that she first meets Gilbert Osmond and his daughter Pansy who is a, a young girl of, of a particular kind of character so yes very uh, very pure 
innocent, idealistic. She is, unlike her world-weary father, uh, very fresh, uh, a little flower, as her name suggests. And uh, she and Isabel are instantly um, attracted to each other or, or they like each other very much. And she, Pansy Osmond, has been very carefully brought up in a convent by nuns and she will obey every word her widowed father says. She is the most important thing in his life and he in hers. And let's have a look at that father. As you say, Isabel has already been courted by and rejected a very handsome, wealthy, very interesting Englishman, a lord of the realm, no less, a very handsome, physically attractive, determined young American. And now the novel takes what is a surprising turn, really, which is that this man, Gilbert Osmond, who doesn't have any of the qualities that those two men do, becomes it becomes obvious after a while that she is going to marry him and indeed does. It's not giving much away about the plot to say that. So what on earth attracts her or does she find in Osmond that is attractive? It's an intriguing question. I've often, that there have been um, a couple of films the Portrait of a Lady, or one film, sorry, made, and one very famous BBC adaptation. And I think if you look at the way Gilbert Osmond is portrayed in each of those, in the film by John Malkovich, you can't see what Isabel sees in him. You actually, you really do have to read the book to see that. Um, she sees a man who is poor, in the sense that he, he's not rich. He lives um, surrounded by beautiful objects, works of art. He doesn't do anything in particular. He leads a very, very quiet life. Uh, his daughter is the only other significant person in it. But her remarkable imagination seems to add to his character what nobody else can see. He is simply for her one of the noblest, most fascinating men she has ever met rather like um, a fascinating uh, painting by Titian or Goya she sees him as a kind of a work of art we get a when he, she first visits his house she's about to sit down on a beautiful chair and, uh, and somebody says no don't sit there there are some good things here but there are also some horrors and it's, it's a small hint of how beneath the surface of elegance, simplicity, beauty, art, the artistic, there is danger. And Isabel is the only one who cannot see it. She is warned by Ralph when he says, I didn't expect somebody like you soaring so high to be brought down to earth by something so insignificant. And it is perversely the opposition of others, including her dearest cousin Ralph, that makes Isabel more determined that she marries to please herself, not to please others. It becomes in a way a test of her independence, her individuality and her making her own life. 
not one that others want her to make. And one might say that this is making her less attractive as a central character. We've, you know, she's almost been at times not far off being a Jane Austen character and Elizabeth Bennet early on. We 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 love being with, and but then she takes you want to shake her. Really, it's like a pantomime. Look behind you. Does she become at any stage in the novel an unsympathetic or less sympathetic central figure? I don't think so. I think that um, she. We, there's a break in the novel, a gap of about three years. Uh, yes, three years from the time when Isabel very quietly marries Gilbert Osmond in Italy. And when the, the second half of the novel opens, she is living in a palace in Rome, a great palace where she entertains visitors in her salon. And we see her as a beautiful, elegant married woman. We learn, and it is an extraordinary thing that we hear so little about this, we learn that she had, uh, early on in their marriage, that she gave birth to a baby boy who died within six months. And it's hardly ever mentioned. That's right. It's quite easy to miss it if you're not paying it attention. Is. It only takes up a couple of yes. sentences. Yeah. Yes. And so what we see is um, Gilbert Osmond, uh, in the middle of um, uh, this setting and it's I think uh, again a kind of a hint of what we're, we're, we're about to see of their marriage that the name of the palace that they live in is the Palazzo Roccanera the Palace of the Black Rock and in the keeping of, in keeping with this a theme that goes through the novel of light we see it in the first page that I read and darkness. It's very, very important that we see that, in fact, in their married life, so admirably intimate at first, as it's later described, that Osmond, after a couple of years, begins to turn out the lights one by one on Isabel. And talking about darkness, I suppose the darkest moment of the book really is what we might call a kind of dark night of the soul which is this extraordinary chapter 42 in which Isabel thinks about her life, what has happened to her. It's, it's, it's almost a kind of inter interior monologue. And I think you're going to read a little bit about this. This is her meditating on her life, which has plainly gone wrong, which is, um, as you say, she's ended up in this kind of desiccated marriage and she ponders, thinks about what has happened to her. It's a remarkable chapter. I think it's the most remarkable chapter in any book I've ever read where a woman takes full stock of the awful situation that she's in. As a prelude to this, uh, we need to say that Lord Warburton has reappeared in Rome and it seems wants to marry Pansy Osmond, Elizabeth's, uh, Isabel's stepdaughter. And it's um, Ralph Touchett who is also in Rome, who sees, in fact, that Warburton wants to be near Pansy because he wants to be near Isabel. Osmond, just before this long night of the soul chapter, has basically said to Isabel, I really want my daughter to marry Warburton and I want you to make sure it happens. 
But in this chapter, Isabel really sees the measure of what their marriage is and what their husband is. She could live it over again, the incredulous terror with which she had taken the measure of her dwelling. Between those four walls she had lived ever since. They were to surround her for the rest of her life. It was the house of darkness, the house of dumbness, the house of suffocation. Osmond's beautiful mind gave it neither light nor air. Osmond's beautiful mind, indeed, seemed to peep down from the small window and mock at her. Of course, it had not been physical suffering. For physical suffering there might have been a remedy. She could come and go. She had her liberty. Her husband was perfectly polite. He took himself so seriously. It was something appalling. Under all his culture, his cleverness, his amenity, under his good nature, his facility, his knowledge of life, his egotism lay hidden like a serpent in a bank of flowers. Yeah, so that simile of the serpent is particularly suggestive. All right. Now, we are going to just pause a discussion of the novels for a minute or two, and then we're going to come back to it for the final five minutes. And I'm going to warn viewers who haven't read the novel that it's a spoiler because we're going to discuss the ending of the novel. So when I got to that point, you, it might be time to tune out of the podcast if you're going to listen uh, any further. You're going to find out what happens. So I'll come to that in a moment. But first of all, just a few things about uh, the rest of Henry James's oeuvre. Uh, a few books to recommend to people who've never read him before. You might want to start with one of these rather than Portrait of a Lady. So we'll recommend two each, let's say, uh, or so. So, John, start. what okay. book might someone start with? If you, if you wanted to start, I think a, a very good one to start with would be the book he wrote immediately before The Portrait of a Lady, and that's Washington Square, a, a book about a, a very plain, rich young woman who is um, pursued by a handsome and unscrupulous fortune hunter. No international light there, but a very interesting study uh, of a vulnerable young woman. Another one um, that uh, I would recommend, maybe after The Portrait of a Lady, one written uh, just after it, and with The Portrait of a Lady, called by F.R. Levis, the two most brilliant novels in the language, is The Bostonians. Again, a struggle uh, of a young woman between a life of politics, feminism, and her love for a man. And I'll recommend two shortish works. First of all, a basically a novella, The Turn of the Screw, one of the great supernatural stories of all literature. Um, a, a story which many people will find themselves familiar with be, if they start reading it because it appears in lots of other films and stories in its kind of mythic kind of story of a governess and two children made famously into an opera by Benjamin Britten. And another shortish novel, uh, What Maisie Knew, which is, uh, again, a brilliant study of childhood innocence, the, the clash between ch childhood and, and adult corruption, essentially. So those are a few ones you might have a go at. I would warn you off the late Henry James, uh, The Golden Bowl, Wings of the Dove, The Ambassadors, because by that stage his style had become extraordinarily baroque and difficult. So they're ones to take on if you've enjoyed the early or middle Henry James.
Okay, so for the last three or four minutes, we're going to discuss the ending of the novel. As I say, if you're excited by the book and want to read it now, I suggest you pause the podcast and come back to it in, in a few weeks. Um, because this ending is a famously controversial ending and an extraordinary ending, really. So, basically now, we're talking to people who've read the novel, we hope. At the end of the novel, John, uh, Ralph Touchett dies. is a death, very moving death scene. And... Isabel is left with a kind of decision to make, a decision to make, a crucial decision about her life. A decision which many women have, many people in marriages. But what's extraordinary is the outcome of that. So tell us what happens right at the end. Yeah. The end of the novel takes place after Ralph touches death in Garden Court, the beautiful country house where the novel opened. And Isabel does not know what to do. She has a husband in Rome. As she puts it to herself, he's not the best of husbands, but she cannot bring herself to repudiate, as she puts it, the single sacred act, the single choice that she freely made that was to be for the rest of her life. As um, the narrator puts it, she was wrong, but she was dismally consistent. However, in the very last pages of the novel, her mind is made up for her by Caspar Goodwood, who uh, confronts her with her unhappiness and declares his love for her and says, you're miserable, you're unhappy, be mine as I am yours. And then there is this extraordinary kiss, literally in the penultimate page of the novel, which when James revised the novel, he intensified in its physical, sexual impact on Isabel. His kiss was like white lightning, a flash that spread and spread again and stayed. And it was extraordinarily as if, whilst she took it, she felt each thing in his hard manhood that at least pleased her, each aggressive fact of his face, his figure, his present, presence justified of its intense identity and made one with this act of possession. So had she heard of those wrecked and underwater following a train of images before they sink. But when darkness returned, she was free. She never looked about her. She only darted from the spot. There were lights in the windows of the house. They shone far across the lawn. In an extraordinarily short time, for the distance was considerable, she had moved through the darkness, for she saw nothing, and reached the door. Here only she paused. She looked all about her. She listened a little. Then she put her hand on the latch. She had not known where to turn, but she knew now there was a very straight path. And the novel ends with Caspar Goodwood calling to her house in London the next day to be told she has left for Rome. And nowadays you would think, well, there it is. She's been liberated. She's had this moment with this man and finally at last she's going to end up with a better person in a way so why exactly does she run away um, run back to escape why does she go back to Gilbert and Osmond it's interesting isn't it that you know this light the brightest light she's ever had has dawned and now when the darkness returns she was free my only uh, explanation of it is this 
idea that she can only be free in her mind um, if her body is not taken over by anybody else. In other words, she cannot she does, cannot trust herself and she does not want to form a relationship that is based on physical passion, which is the sort of relationship she would clearly have with Casper Goodwood. It's perverse. It's inexplicable, I suppose, to nearly every modern reader. And James himself said that people were dissatisfied with the ending, that he was accused of leaving her in mid-air. But as he said in his own notebook, the truth, the full truth of anything can never be told. You can only take what groups together. The rest may or may not be taken up later. Well, that comes to the end of our discussion of The Portrait of a Lady by Henry James, novel written in 1881. As I say, wonderful summer reading for you. This is Julian Gurdon from SCC English. Our blog is sccenglish.ie. And if you've been listening to our podcasts over the last term or two of interviews, as well as revision ones, thank you. And we'll be back in September 2009 for the moment. Many thanks to John Fannigan and goodbye. <laughs>